be surprised at anything, and this was the demeanor she maintained while the men knelt over her fallen husband. Besides, they were wearing authentic lifeguard T-shirts, weren't they? After ten minutes of ministrations and Vaseline, the lifeguards informed Nell Bellamy that they would have to transport her husband to a first-aid station. They said he needed medicine to counteract the man-of-war's venom. Nell wanted to go along, but they persuaded her to wait, and assured her it was nothing serious. Theodore said, Don't be silly, work on your tan, I'll be okay now. And off they went, Theodore, all pale-legged and striped-bellied, a lifeguard at each side, marching down the beach. That was 8.44 a.m. Nell Bellamy never saw her husband again. At ten sharp, she went searching for the lifeguards, with no success, and after walking a gritty two-mile stretch of beach, she called the police. A patrolman came to the Holiday Inn and took a missing persons report. Nell mentioned Theodore's hangover and what a lousy swimmer he was. The cop told Mrs. Bellamy that her husband had probably tried to go back into the water and had gotten into trouble in the rough surf. When Mrs. Bellamy described the two lifeguards, the policeman gave her a very odd look. The case of Theodore Bellamy was not given top priority at the Miami Beach Police Department, where the officers had more catastrophic things to worry about than a drunken Shriner missing in the ocean. The police instead were consumed with establishing the whereabouts of B.D. Sparky Harper, one of the most important persons in all Florida. Harper, who had failed to show up at his office for the first time in twenty-one years, every available detective was out shaking the palm trees, hunting for Sparky. When it became clear that the police were too preoccupied to launch a manhunt for her husband, Nell Bellamy mobilized the Shriners. They invaded the beach in packs, some on foot, others on motorcycle, a few in tiny red motor cars, that had a tendency to get stuck in the sand. The Shriners wore grim, purposeful looks. Teddy Bellamy was one of their own. The Shriners were thorough, and they got results. Nell cried when she heard the news. They had found Theodore's fez on the beach at water's edge. Nell thought, So he really drowned, the big nut? Later the Shriners gathered at Lummis Park for an impromptu prayer service. Someone laid a wreath on the handlebars of Bellamy's customized Harley. Nobody could have dreamed what actually happened to Theodore Bellamy. But this was just the beginning. They found Sparky Harper later that same day, a bright and cloudless afternoon. A cool breeze kicked up a light chop on the Pines Canal, where the suitcase floated, half-submerged, invisible to the teenager on water skis. He was skimming along at forty knots when he rammed the luggage and launched into a spectacular triple somersault. His friends wheeled the boat to pick him up and offer congratulations. Then they doubled back for the suitcase. It took all three of them to haul it aboard, they figured it had to be stuffed with money or dope. The water skier got a screwdriver from a toolbox and chiseled at the locks on the suitcase. Let's see what's inside, he said eagerly. And there, 
folded up like Charlie McCarthy, was B.D. Sparky Harper. A dead midget! the boat driver gasped. That's no midget, the water skier said. That's a real person. Oh, God, we gotta call the cops. Come on, help me shut this damn thing. But with Sparky Harper swelling, the suitcase wouldn't close, and the latches were broken anyway, so all the way back to the marina, the three of them sat on the luggage to keep the dead midget inside. Two Dade County detectives drove out to Virginia Key to get the apple-red Samsonite Royal Tourister. They took a statement from the water skier, put the suitcase in the trunk of their unmarked Plymouth, and headed back downtown. One of the cops, a blocky redhead, walked into the medical examiner's office carrying the Samsonite as if nothing were wrong. Is this the Pan Am terminal? He deadpanned to the first secretary he saw. The suitcase was taken to the morgue and placed on a shiny steel autopsy table. Dr. Joe Allen, the chief medical examiner, recognized Sparky Harper instantly. Well, the first thing we've got to do, said Dr. Allen, putting on some rubber gloves, is get him out of there. Whoever had murdered the president of the Greater Miami Chamber of Commerce had gone to considerable trouble to pack him into the Red Samsonite. Sparky was only five foot five, but he weighed nearly 190 pounds, most of it in the midriff. To have squeezed him into a suitcase, even a deluxe-sized suitcase, was a feat that drew admiring comments from the coroner's seasoned staff. One of the clerks used up two rolls of film documenting the extrication. Finally, the corpse was removed and unfolded, more or less, onto the table. It was then that some of the amazement dissolved. Harper's legs were missing below the kneecaps. That's how the killer had fit him into the suitcase. One of the cops whispered, Look at those clothes, Doc. It was odd. Sparky Harper had died wearing a brightly flowered print shirt and baggy Bermuda-style shorts. Sporty black wraparound sunglasses concealed his dilated pupils. He looked just like any old tourist from Milwaukee. The autopsy took two hours and twenty minutes. Inside Sparky Harper, Dr. Allen found two gallstones, forty-seven grams of partially digested stone crabs, and thirteen ounces of Puyi Fuise. But the coroner found no bullets, no stab wounds, no signs of trauma besides the amputations, which were crude but not necessarily fatal. He must have bled to death, the red-headed cop surmised. Don't think so, Dr. Allen said. Betty drowned, said the other cop. No, sir, said Dr. Allen, who was probing into the lungs by now. Dr. Allen wasn't crazy about people gawking over his shoulder while he worked. It made him feel like he was performing on stage, a magician pulling little purple treasures out of a dark hole. He didn't mind having medical students as observers because they were always so solemn during an autopsy. Cops were something else, one dumb joke after another. Dr. Allen had never figured out why cops get so silly in a morgue. 
What's that greasy stuff all over his skin? asked the red-headed detective. Essence of stiff, said the other cop. Smells like coconuts, said the redhead. I'm serious, Doc. Take a whiff. No, thank you, Dr. Allen said curtly. I don't smell anything, said the assistant coroner, except the deceased. It's coconut, definitely, said the other cop, sniffing. Maybe he drowned in piña colada. Nobody could have guessed what actually had killed Sparky Harper. It was supple and green and exactly five and one-quarter inches long. Dr. Allen found it lodged in the trachea. At first, he thought it was a large chunk of food, but it wasn't. It was a toy rubber alligator. It had cost 79 cents at a tourist shop along the Tamiami Trail. The price tag was still glued to its corrugated tail. B.D. Sparky Harper, the president of the most powerful chamber of commerce in all Florida, had choked to death on a rubber alligator. Well, well, thought Dr. Allen, as he dangled the prize for his protégés to see. Here's one for my slideshow at next month's convention. Chapter 2 News of B.D. Harper's death appeared on the front page of the Miami Sun, with a retouched photograph that made Harper look like a flatulent Gene Hackman. Details of the crime were meager, but this much was known. Harper had last been seen on the night of November 30th, driving away from Joe's Stone Crab Restaurant on South Miami.